Story number one, Welcome Party, written by Shark Lionheart. When humanity finally became a truly space-faring race by testing out its first FTL engine, nobody was there to greet us. There was no regatta of diplomatic vessels. There was not some grand meet-up between the species. There wasn't even a radio signal to say, Hi, we're neighbors. The stars remained stubbornly silent as they had always done. At least, nobody was announcing their intentions to annihilate us. As we expected, we found planets aplenty, with the Mediterranean paradises to scorched hulls to which not even Venus could hold a candle. Gas giants with spectacular ring systems reminiscent of Saturn. Pockmarked rocky planets with craters that could be seen from high orbit. Even a few ashen wastelands orbiting stellar remnants and a handful of strange planets orbiting neutron stars and black holes. We found examples of any type of planet you could imagine, save the type native intelligent life. We looked at those created rocky planets and wondered in despair if maybe it would have been too late. Maybe civilizations had arose but been wiped out through war or natural processes. Maybe humanity really was alone in the universe, and we shrieked into the void, and every frequency and every manner we could think of for some response, any response. Again, the stars silently stared back with their cold, steady gazes, seemingly damning humanity to utter isolation. And it nearly broke us. And then we found them. We found them on a super-Earth, surface gravity right around 4G, an honest-to-God in the super-universe alien civilization. They were short, to be expected with that kind of gravity, really. But they did have radio, which meant that they had electricity, which meant that they had buildings, which meant that they had the capacity to build cities. Their exact response when their radio communications were abruptly intruded upon by some weirdos in the sky speaking a wholly unknown language has sadly been lost to time, but it is pretty easy to imagine. After the initial panic ground side, we set our computers to build a common language. The computers did what they did best, sent a series of strings of zeros and ones into the played with. Encoded in those strings were our base 10 numbering system. The computers wasted patiently for a reply. The humans on the board waited decidedly less patiently. 72 hours later, the reply came back. 35 strings of binary, one of the original strings followed by a new string, then another original, and then another new one. Then, how after a last one, a string, then a pause, then another string, and so on. The linguists descended upon the poor technician with the printout like Black Friday shoppers moving towards the last hot new toy on the shelf. Apparently, these creatures utilized a base 25 numbering system. Odd, but not wholly unexpected. To cut a long story short, it was nearly three years before we finally managed to have an audio-only communication between diplomats both sides could understand. We didn't care. We weren't alone. They didn't care either. Their eyes had been opened to a whole new realm of existence. As we talked back and forth, an idea slowly revealed itself to us. Life was rare, like Gordon Ramsay admonishing an adult chef without using profanities rare. Turned out that there were few qualifying factors needed to be met before life could even begin to think about taking hold. Number one, life, or at least the advanced life, requires liquid water. 
This means that whatever the life has hosted on has to be near a long-term heat source, like, say, a star. Number two, in order to be close enough to stars that liquid water can exist, the life's host's celestial body must be massive enough to actually hold onto that water, and additionally requires an atmosphere, lest the water simply boil away in low pressure. These kinds of masses only come with a fully-fledged planet. 3. The planet also requires a magnetic field long-term, which also requires the planet to have few too many Christmas cookies, so to speak. So if a planet was too light, it would be too small, and close to the star tends to leave only a heavier element such as silicon, and with only trace amounts of the lighter stuff like hydrogen, courtesy of solar wind. And the square cube raw meant that the planet would lose too much heat quickly. If the core would freeze solid, shutting off the magnetic fields and allowing the solar wind to chip away at the atmosphere, losing the planet its water before life could ever hope to take a hold. These three tenants added to a rather awful realization. Civilizations likely only had a prayer of developing on worlds where it would be economically infeasible to build substantial number of rockets capable of putting satellites into stable orbit, let alone space stations, even if modular, or permanent off-world habitations. Earth, it seemed, was towards the lower end of the way class for habitable worlds, and their star creatures, which, in a moment of humor and lacking any other equivalent word in our language, we had called them dwarves, were likely the norm. Luckily, the dwarves didn't take too much offense to our name for them, at least not after it was explained that the dwarf was simply a person who was abnormally short and or small by our, possibly biased, standards. Regardless, the dwarves had long ago realized the futility of visiting anywhere that wasn't ground, and they had stopped trying. Funny thing is, with all the innovations energy no longer aimed at the skies, they turned to other scientific fields. And boy, did they have something to show us. The material sciences made ours look childish, and they had something that when translated into English was known as carbon nanotube fiber rope. We got an idea. We asked the dwarves for the knowledge to create CNFR, sharing our plan with them. After a whopping five seconds of contemplation, our computer began receiving data. Lots of data. All the data on how to create the CNFR was gifted to us. In return, we transmitted the data with the way back to Earth. FDL communications having been cracked decades before FDL flight, and a shipyard was commissioned, a special berth was constructed, and within it, the middle finger to all those millennia of isolation was constructed. It was honestly a little more than a giant spool of CNFR with an FTL engine with some basic accommodations for crew. But far later than anyone would have liked, there was no construction delays or anything. We were just impatient. The ship was ready. And the intervening years we'd been communicating with the dwarves, they'd even snagged a few relatively close asteroids, stripping their minerals and building some nice communication satellites for them. The dwarves were ecstatic upon hearing that they would be able to talk to dwarves on the other side of the planet without having to use an ingenious backlunky system of using radio stations as relays, with every relay increasing a chance of introducing error. We given them television, and for the first thing we'd both done is have a televised meeting. To our shock, they really did look like us, only shorter. They had more hair, but their star was dimmer, and they were a little farther towards the outer edge of the habitable zone. 
so their planet was a bit colder than Earth. So nothing nonsensical there. Turned out, though at work for one place tended to work everywhere, and despite it all, the humanoid form really was rather efficient for being sapient beings. At long last, the spool ship arrived and maneuvered into position, just outside of geostationary orbit, and that spool started to unwind, its end slowly being pulled towards the surface of the dwarves' homeworld. It took several days, but at last, the end made it down only a few centimeters of dead center, and it was immediately secured. The dwarves now had a space elevator. We could now meet face to face. When the dwarf diplomat stepped off the elevator car into the cramped, for us, probably palatial for him, station, he was wearing a biological hazard suit, as were those of the lucky enough to be there, just in case, you know. Eventually, the biologists would determine that while the biologies were in fact surprisingly similar, the pathogens probably could only make a leap, so too were the immune systems, and the latter would be sufficient to fight off the other's germs. That first tearful hug between the two friends was the first of many, as man and dwarf quickly found themselves fast friends. And so, the two species went off to explore the galaxy, and along the way we found more life. Sadly, some of it had indeed fallen to catastrophe, leaving only ruins, and some were simply too xenophobic but were happy to leave us alone if we returned the favor. Those systems are still marked off limits. But the vast majority seemed all too happy to join us, for they were just like the dwarves. They were friendly and stranded at the bottom of a deep gravity well. As our collective grew, so did our knowledge base. As the knowledge base grew, our technology grew ever more advanced, to the point where we could pinpoint the NFDL engine on the other side of the galaxy in real time. Imagine our surprise when one day we got exactly such a signal from no known vessel an uncontracted species, and one that had managed not only spaceflight, but FTL flight completely independently. We knew what we had to do. We scrambled. Diplomats were, in some cases, literally dragged out of bed, still half asleep in their sleep attire. Ships were readied. Five minutes later, our diplomatic fleet was screaming across the galaxy to this mysterious ship's rejected exit point. We got there into formation just four microseconds before the ship exited into real space. And we made damn sure that the new species got an open-loved welcome that we ourselves never did. End of story.